Um, it's really good to be with you after um, a bout of COVID, which uh, as most of you know, sucks anyways, but if you've experienced it, Courtney and myself were like, yeah, that was not fun. So it's really good to be here in the community with you today. It's really good uh, after a, a bit of a crazy weekend. It was a great weekend. Uh, our young adults uh, group went to uh, Arasha, which was great. And I brought uh, my three relief care boys with me. And um, the four-year-old particularly loved Talia. Um, and uh, the boys also loved Jordan, who found a frog for them, which was the coolest thing ever. And he also rescued them from this like concrete thing toppling on them because I wasn't watching them carefully enough. So that was, uh, that was a bit crazy. It was good. Um, and it's just good to be with you uh, together on this Sunday. But it's a weird Sunday. Um, and some of you are like, excited because it's like Palm Sunday. You know what that is. Some of you have no idea what that is or don't really care, but uh, it's kind of a strange Sunday because it's not quite Easter Sunday. It feels like the not quite Easter Sunday. And some of you are noticing that I'm up here. So it's an unusual Sunday in that they're like, normally Pastor Wes is up here and I, they're like, oh, maybe it's the Sunday they, get, they you know, bring up good old Associate Pastor Dave. But it's not just that we do this normally, but maybe you're thinking a little bit of an unusual Sunday because of that. Is it just an ordinary Sunday? Is it just one more Sunday in the church year? Or do you think God wants to do something amazing with us this Sunday? Something with us this Sunday just before Easter to prepare us, to help us to refocus on Jesus in some new and fresh ways. Now, most of us know, at least even if we kind of are observing church, we know that Easter's kind of a big deal, right? It's kind of that one of the at least two Sundays that lots of people show up for church, right? The Christmas Easter kind of thing, right? But if it's such a big deal, if it's, if it's such a big deal, do you not think that we should maybe prepare just a little bit, just to get ready for the more than chocolate Sunday that's coming next week? Now, I'm appreciative for Courtney and all the work that she put into making those Easter boxes for us. That helps us to prepare, to get ready for the Easter season. So, friends, what does God want to prepare in us as we move forward towards Easter, towards the cross and the resurrection of Jesus? What do you want to prepare? Now, our passage is that perfect entry place. It's that perfect space, and many of you know, we've already talked about this, it's, the, it's known as the triumphal entry. It's this Easter, this one week before the Easter story, exactly one week before this incredible week of the, the culmination of the ministry of Jesus on earth. And our, past, our passage today is a reminder of who Jesus is and why he has come. So I hope and pray that the cross will make even more sense and the resurrection of Jesus will make even more sense for what he has done for us. Now, our passage today is one of those passages that, that is a great example of how the Bible kind of subverts or surprises our expectations. It kind of surprises our expectations. And we call this passage the triumphal entry. Uh, but is it really all that victorious and impressive? Like, if we're watching this, you're like, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe this Jesus isn't exactly as advertised because maybe at first glance, you might be a little disappointed. It could be like, yeah, there's some people kind of happy. There's some coats flying around. I don't know, but couldn't there be a little more fireworks? And, and what's with the horse? Couldn't he have even a bigger horse? Like there's some way cooler horses than this one, right? 
What's the big deal there? Now, back when I was a teenager, and I'm not picking on teenagers, I'm picking on myself here. Back when I was a teenager uh, looking for a job, uh, I applied for a lot of jobs. There were some cool jobs. I really wanted this job at McDonald's. I did not get that. Um, I, I really, really wanted a job at an ice cream shop, which I did get, which was great. They weirdly went out of business like a couple weeks after I started, but I was like, I want to test all the flavors. And so I was sort of slightly blame myself for that. Anyways, and then there was this comic book store, which I really wanted to be, have a job at. Like that was my dream job. So you can imagine me as a young guy, that's my dream job. Never got the comic book store. It was called the Silver Snail. So cool. No, did not get that job. So sad. But there was this one job that was advertised. It was a summer job and I had no job and I needed money because one does. And I lived in Toronto. Um, if you don't know Toronto, it's a big city. It's a pretty vibrant city, especially in the summer. There's lots of stuff going on. And I lived uh, pretty close to downtown. So like there was lots of stuff going on. There was like much music and like all this fashion stuff. It was, it was pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I, I, I love this city more, but you know, I can, I can give credit. So here's this job that's advertised. It's, it's with this, this company and, it, and there's this huge contest all over Toronto for a big cash prize. It was like this big deal and it was advertised as like this huge big thing. And we were invited, this friend and I were invited to be part of the team. I was like, dang, this is gonna be so amazing. We're so excited to be able to go all around Toronto and like share how cool we are and, and get people interested and excited about this big contest. So, uh, yeah, we were sandwich boards for six weeks. <laughs> if you don't want a sandwich board, it's a, it's a board that goes over you and you're kind of sandwiched in it and you walk around. So I walked around Toronto and all these cool people and all this fashion was going on and all these rock stars were happening. I'm walking down the street with a sandwich board. Definitely did not live up to our expectations. But to this day, to this day, I am so grateful for my friend's mom, who is not too embarrassed to be seen with us, who would occasionally take us out for lunch. So we'd sit there on our sandwich boards and eat lunch at these cafes, and she'd be like, it's okay, boys, you're totally fine. But she had an awesome Spanish accent. Anyways, uh, she was the one person who wasn't embarrassed. We were, but she was not. Thank God, thank God for her. And so we know, we know sometimes things are not as advertised. So as we come to Easter this year, maybe you're thinking, I need something a bit more. I need, I need Easter to be a bit bigger of a deal. It's, it's kind of maybe not feeling as advertised this year. And so at first, our patches may not seem to say too much to us or, or give us confidence in Jesus. But, but let me encourage you. Our passage shows Jesus himself to be God's promised king come to bring God's promised peace. So friends, I encourage you now to stand with me as we read our passage from Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 29. And for some of you, it's a familiar passage. So you can look that up on your phone. You can get the Bible out. Let me read this to us. As he, Jesus, approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. 
As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You may be seated. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. Thank you for this lead into Easter. And we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds. And Lord, would you bless my voice as I speak by the Spirit. And Lord, would you do an amazing work in hearts today for us to be able to see Jesus, you as the King, the promised King who has come to bring your promised peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if we are correct in this pa- reading this passage that Jesus is God's promised king to bring God's promised peace, what do we need? What do we need? What's going to help us out? Well, I think we need kind of three things. We need a whole bunch, but here's three things that might be helpful. First of all, we need some confidence in Jesus going to this passage. We need some confidence in Jesus. Maybe we just need that renewed, but we need some confidence in what's happening here. But we also need some understanding of what's actually going on, because there probably is a whole lot going on here that some of us are like, yeah, I know that a little bit, but need to be reminded. And some of us are like, I don't get this at all. This is a bit of a wacky thing that's happening. And thirdly, we need some time to actually consider, to actually consider how do we respond to this? So firstly, this is how we're going to uh, spend our time. First, we're going to, if we need some confidence that we can, we can trust in Jesus, we've got to figure out what he's doing here. Let's, let's figure out what Jesus is doing together. Secondly, we need some understanding. We need to get, kind of dig in a little bit. So to dig into what kind of king Jesus is kind of claiming to be. And thirdly, we need to consider how to respond. How do we want Jesus, do we want this peace that Jesus is kind of offering? Or is there maybe another way? We need some time to consider that, to really think about it. So first, as uh, you and I come into this passage today, Uh, I pray that we're going to have some refreshed confidence in Jesus as we go into Easter. So I say confidence, confidence, this this thing that our world seems to have as this special commodity, this thing that we can kind of buy and sell or that we kind of want for ourselves or we want others to have in us or in things that we're selling or things that we're about, this certainty and reliability and trustworthiness, confidence. Now, most of you know, so much advertising that we see around us has kind of an insane confidence, doesn't it? It's, it doesn't always make sense. There's this confidence that like a soft drink or some beer or some gum, that's going to change my life, right? That's a pretty insane confidence to be able to say that. And for us to kind of go, yeah, yeah, I want that gum to change my life. You know, that, there's that kind of thing that there's this confidence out there. It's like, where does that come from? So advertising, yeah, that's one space we see it. Or how about, how about the people that we watch? Maybe it's like people on social media or just people that we're really interested in, people around us. They seem to have some impressive confidence. But then if we ask a question like, why is it that someone who's, who's kind of good at talking but doesn't know a whole lot about the world, we seem to, to kind of have confidence in what they're saying and maybe not what others are saying. So confidence in others around us. And how about politicians? 
Um, and I know that's a sore spot for many of us, but politicians, they seem to have this incredible confidence in either their plan of peace or their plan of destruction. Why should we have confidence in these people? Now, I can remember personally having a whole lot of confidence going into my driving test at 16. A whole, like literally, I was like, I own this, I will win this, I have this. And I had this incredible confidence until I failed it, right? Now, now you might have, have encountered some, some Christian folks who have incredible confidence. And sometimes you're like, I don't know if you should have that confidence like you're having right now. And I've had some pretty poor experiences where someone seemed to have so much confidence. And, and here's, a, here's one of my saddest stories. Someone had this incredible confidence in telling this family with a sick kid, you are going to be healed by this exact calendar date. Great confidence. You just have to believe. And then when it didn't happen, all the people around them, and the mom particularly, had to pick up those pieces, right? So you and I actually have some good reasons to be a bit skeptical or maybe outright distrust someone or something that has this high confidence. So as we come into our passage today, you might notice that Jesus himself has a whole lot more confidence than the average person. I don't know if you notice it, but he seems to have this huge amount of confidence. Now, I don't know if you noticed, did anything in this passage seem a bit unusual to you? Maybe you've heard it a hundred times and you're like, well, I don't know, it seems like the same old passage. Or maybe some of you are coming to this passage kind of fresh. You're like, this is, there's a couple of odd things that are happening here. Would you turn with me to verse 29? You can open your Bibles again if you like, or you can just listen, or you have your Bible app. That's perfect. We're going to look at verse 29 for a moment. Verse 29. As he, Jesus, approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there. Now, so here's Jesus a couple of kilometers away from Jerusalem, he sends two of his followers into the village just opposite them, where they're to do an errand for him. Okay, that, that, that doesn't seem very unusual. Here's Jesus, he's kind of the boss, he's the guy, right? He sends these guys off to do an errand. But if we listen a little more closely to the text, verse 30, go to the village ahead of you and enter it. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Now, the first thing you might notice here is that Jesus knows far more than he should. Go to this village, and it's probably an unfamiliar spot, right? It's not somewhere they go all the time. In that village, you will find, not might find or could find, but definitively find a colt. Not just any colt, not just any one of these horse, small horses. Not any colt but a colt that no one has ever ridden. And he says, basically, this is going to happen. That's a lot of confidence. Now, when there's this kind of knowledge, or sometimes called foreknowledge, or special knowledge in the Bible, we often associate that with the prophetic. And some of you are very familiar with that, that word prophetic. And some of you are like, well, I, that sounds very Bible-y. I heard a number of years ago when I was at Regent College, something really simple but helpful for me that the prophetic is basically God's word in God's time to God's people. I know it's a little overly simplistic, but I think it's helpful. God's word in God's time to God's people. Now, 
usually the prophet hears from God, right? God speaks and they're able to respond, right? In this passage, Jesus is the one speaking the word and the disciples are the one responding. Now, a prophet is a big deal, right? And most of us kind of go, okay, yeah, that's kind of one of the, the, the high echelon folks in the Bible, the prophets, right? And this is actually a specially big deal because the God's people haven't really experienced the prophetic in hundreds of years at this point. So this is actually kind of a big deal that's happening right here. And Jesus, right here in this passage, shows himself to be more than a prophet. People might think, oh, he's kind of like a prophet, but he's showing himself to be more than just a prophet. He seems, quite simply, to be taking the role that God himself takes. He's taking the role that God himself takes. He speaks a word of the future, knowing things in time and space, and even responses. Even responses. Now, let's pause for a moment. I like to predict things. I, I don't know about you. It's kind of fun, right? You're like, I think this is going to happen or that. And, and you see, like, entire industries all around us are based off of predictions, right? Whether it's something like gambling or lotteries, like, I'm going to win or whatever. Or whether it's, like, a lot of businesses are based on predicting, knowing what's going to kind of happen, like, whether it's stocks and bonds and all that kind of thing, Right? Now, for my entire childhood, for my entire childhood, I, as I said, I grew up in Toronto. I was a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. You might know where this is going. And so as a kid, I predicted every week they're going to win. And guess what? I was wrong every single time, every single time. I don't know if they won a single game my entire childhood. I don't know. So sometimes our predictions are totally off, right? They're kind of just wishful thinking. Sometimes our predictions are actually really glorious and really true. And I don't know if you, if you know this, almost exactly a year ago this week, I came on as the associate pastor here at Dunbar Heights. Now that is a prediction in my heart that has gone absolutely, completely, amazingly well and beautifully. Now, have we tripped up in things? Am I perfect? Absolutely not. But it's at least something I can say, this is something amazing. This is something I could say God was calling me to and God has been totally right on the money. Right? So there's some good ones and some bad ones. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. What Luke does here is more than just like wishful thinking or, hey, that was a good idea. Look what Luke does. He gives very, Jesus here in this passage gives very clear instructions. And Luke affirms this very clear word of Jesus. Something that only God could know and how it would play out. Let, let me read this to us uh, in verse 32. Verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. So Luke here shows us word for word, moment by moment, reaction by reaction, exactly as Jesus said. No room for kind of dancing around, kind of like what Jesus said, maybe a little like what Jesus said. The precision and prophetic power is revealed to us right here. So it seems, seems if we're kind of just stepping back, it seems like Jesus himself is the source of this true, precise, clear, and perfect match of what will happen and does happen. Perfect foreknowledge, which only belongs to God, who operates both inside and outside of time that he created, 
right? That's pretty powerful. So if we're looking, looking at this, it could seem like just an ordinary kind of story, but this is kind of what's being revealed. So as we come back to confidence, it's important to establish that with great confidence, Jesus speaks the future prediction or foreknowledge and is fully reliable. So I hope that we can see that we can have confidence in what Jesus says seems to happen. Or maybe even push it further, what Jesus says does happen. But what is Jesus saying exactly? Is he, is he kind of just like, okay, he, here's, what's, here's what's happening, that's pretty awesome. Let's l- listen to these verses again. Verse 30, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Now, let's look at this in in a couple of rapid-fire questions so we can deeper understand what Jesus is actually doing, have an understanding of what's actually going on here. Here's a couple of questions, ready? An unridden colt, who needs it? Who needs it? Jesus is saying the Lord needs it, okay. Is this just that God in general needs this cute little horse guy? Is it like, oh yeah, the Lord needs it because he likes cute horses? Or, or is there something more there? Why do the owners of the colt just turn the animal over? That's not a normal thing. It's not just like, oh sure, have, have our horse, right? No, something seems to be compelling them to do that. And why is it exactly that Jesus is saying the Lord needs it. Why is is Luke kind of emphasizing that the Lord needs it? Well, it might be, and if if we're kind of honest, the only person who really needs this horse is Jesus himself. He's ultimately the one who, who both needs it and wants this special animal. So at the very least, at the very least with these little questions, Jesus is identifying himself with the fulfillment of what the Lord needs. And if we press in, it is straightforward to consider, at least, or to conclude that Jesus himself is the Lord who needs it. That's what he's claiming. He is the Lord who needs this creature for a purpose. But what is this purpose? A couple more little rapid fires. Listen to the passage here in verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, the colt, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. So what kind of story is Jesus telling us here with this unridden colt and cloaks? Is Jesus trying to make some sort of scene like, hey, look at me, everybody? Well, it kind of seems like he is, a little bit at least. He's doing this on purpose, right? But what kind of story is he telling? Is this colt, this entrance down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem saying more than just like, admire this guy, he's famous, maybe. He's, he's kind of a big deal. He's our teacher. Let's make a big deal of him. Is it saying more than that? Well, of course, you know, the answer is, of course it is, yes. And as Pastor West actually mentioned already, that what kind of leaps off the page and would have leapt off the page or in the hearts of the people who were right there is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And this kind of passage we almost always come to on Palm Sunday. And Zechariah is speaking of a king like David, kind of in the line of David, come to rescue, that Hosanna, save, right? Come to fulfill God's promise. But there's a promise of a very different kind of king. Now listen to this amazing 
passage in Zechariah 9. Let me read this to us. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughters of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, righteous and triumphant, lowly or humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice. There's a sense of joy. There's, there's a king that is coming who is who's righteous. His, who he is is right with God and with others. And he comes this, with this victory or this triumph, right? But there's something about this king that's a little bit different. He's a king who's righteous and victorious, but he's humble, riding on a donkey. So who is this king? Well, Jesus knows that he has come as that king, that humble, righteous king, this victorious king. So what kind of king will this be? Well, many of you have probably heard this, but it bears repeating. Jesus is not coming riding on a war horse. He's not coming riding with the, the kind of military style of victory and power, but a colt. He's not coming in this self-exaggeration or self-exalting glory like the rulers of his day. And, and often we would find in the, the people who are trying to lead in our day making a big deal of themselves. But he comes as the king of peace, of shalom, of welcome and goodwill. So what is the heart of this king? Is he arriving for the, the fame of himself? Or is he a different kind of king? Well, let's just trace back just a few weeks earlier as Jesus began this journey, as he comes towards Jerusalem. Just listen to a few verses from Luke chapter 9, just to get us, help us to, to get to this space to know what kind of king this is. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says and repeats this, that his trip to Jerusalem, his ride to Jerusalem, his journey to Jerusalem isn't about the personal power or pleasure or wealth or fame. This road means death to him. Verse 22 of chapter 9 in Luke. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed but wink, wink, on the third day, be raised to life. And Luke reminds us that just verses later, just verses later in chapter 9, Jesus' heart is set in obedience to God's mission and your rescue and my rescue, the forgiveness of our sins and the peace that God brings us. Verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 51 just a few verses later from what we just read. I love this. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, listen to this, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Here he is knowing he's going to die and his heart is resolutely set. The confidence in who God is and the mission of forgiveness for our sins and peace with God, he resolutely sets out for that road of death. So we have a king who comes confidently, who invites our confidence in him. 
We have a king who comes humbly, that compels us to follow him because he comes for us, for our forgiveness, for our peace with God. We have a king who we can understand just a bit more through this passage, just a bit more, this humble king. So how can we respond? How can we respond? Well, if we look at the two basic responses in the passage, there's two basic responses. We can think about how we can respond to the confident identity of Jesus, this humble, kingly nature of Jesus. That's being presented to us. How do we respond to it? What we seem to have in our passage is either this joyous celebration, this triumphal kind of entry, or angry criticism, this angry criticism that you hear. Now, we could jump to the conclusion quite quickly that one of these two responses is always the right one. One of them is always wrong. Before we do that, I do want to remind us that there are times where people can can and do say to Christians and ought to say to Jesus particularly, like the Pharisees, in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I want us to, to hear that there are times when the disciples of Jesus, both then and now, are not acting in right and just ways. Nor are they reflecting the character and mission of Jesus, our humble King. And the response ought to be, teacher, rebuke your disciples, correct these Christians, discipline them. Maybe you've experienced this, maybe from kind of a distance or maybe close by. I certainly have. And there have been times where I've had some deep disappointments. And one example of that is, is uh, with a leader who I very much respected, Rabbi Zacharias. And maybe you know his ministry, maybe you don't. But over the years, I was really encouraged by this ministry of apologetics, sharing of who Jesus is and what he's done and how amazing it is in the light of history. And I was impressed and encouraged by this clear intellect and even humor. But friends, he was living a double life and and hurting and abusing women who are especially vulnerable. And there's some quite a few other situations like that. And I want to tell you, it is right to be angry and critical. That is a good thing. To say to Jesus, Jesus, what's going on here? What's going on here? Rebuke your disciples. And maybe you've had an experience personally. You've been hurt by someone in the church, whether it's intentionally, where you're like, that seemed to be on purpose, or just unintentionally, just something that happened and it was like, that was really hurtful. Or maybe you've seen Christians treat someone with kind of harsh judgment or a lack of love, or perhaps you've seen Christians ignore something that is sort of significantly an issue of justice, and it causes you to be angry and critical. And I'm not saying that that's always a poor, like that can be a right response to be angry this, and, and look at that situation with a critical eye. But I want us to notice in this passage in particular The Pharisees in this story are critical about something very specific. It is about 
how Jesus' disciples respond to him riding into Jerusalem, riding on this colt. They are angry and critical of exactly what we've been talking about, that Jesus claims to be king. They, they notice this. They, that seems to be exactly what he's doing, claiming to be this king, but not only king, but Messiah, the promised king. And the disciples, the disciples here, are responding with this joy and even triumph, right? This triumphal entry of Jesus. And we could join with the Pharisees this Easter season, be upset. And it's easy to be upset with our lives, isn't it? Our world, it's a mess. And even Christians, where we see, oh, that's not the way it should be. Or even the church, like, we are not supposed to treat each other that way. We could join with them and say, doesn't seem to be anything really joyful or triumphant here. Don't you see all of the terrible things and the oppression all around us? And we could join with them with some critical assumptions about Jesus, that he seems to be claiming to be more than a prophet, more than just a king, but maybe even God's promised son. And that is one response. We need to have time to think about, it. is that going to be my response? Or, or we could listen. We could listen to the celebration of these early disciples, caught up in the realization that Jesus is claiming to be king, to be the Messiah, the Son of God, even potentially the Lord. Whatever they may have made of this kind of seen this understanding at the time. This is before the resurrection of Jesus. This is before the cross even. Whatever they are making of this, this, this scene, they seem to be responding with this triumph, with this joy. So what is it exactly that they're doing to show that as Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on the colt? Well, they're filled with praise. They're filled with joy. They're filled with this sense of God is going to save us. They're filled with this incredible praise for God. But you see, it's not just this general praise, which is beautiful. It's beautiful just to praise God and, and to love God, absolutely. But I want us to notice that this praise here has a certain substance to it. It's not just, hurrah, yay, God, you're awesome. But it's very specifically directed. Verse 35, listen to this. They brought it, the colt, to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Here they are claiming Jesus to be king, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Did you hear that? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, normally this, this is from the Psalms. It's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You probably heard that. They're probably saying that too, but they're also saying blessed is he who's the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're praising with loud voices. And they're not like, hey, Jesus, is good. No, they're making a big deal. They're making a scene. They're making a scene with loud voices. And what are they praising? What are they saying and they, as they praise? Well, I love this. All oh, the miracles they had seen. And what they're likely doing, what they're likely doing is recounting, 
recounting all the miraculous things they had seen through the hands of Jesus. They had seen Jesus do. Maybe some examples of that way would be praising God for the healings they had seen or received. Praise God, I've been healed. Or perhaps they're praising God for the ways in which Jesus cast out demons and people have been cleansed from evil. Or perhaps they're praising God for the ways in which Jesus proclaimed the word to them, brought them life through his word and his touch. And so many of these folks have come to a new relationship with God and they're saved. Perhaps even Zacchaeus. If you remember the story of Zacchaeus, here's a guy who was greedy and all about himself. He had to see Jesus and Jesus transforms his life. Perhaps Zacchaeus is in this crowd praising God for the way his life is transformed. Praising God for all the miraculous things they had seen. And they're proclaiming peace. Because of what Jesus is doing and will do, they're proclaiming peace in heaven and glory because of what God right here in Jesus is doing. This humble king who has finally come. This peace, this heaven's peace on earth met in Jesus. Heaven's peace on earth met in Jesus. God and man in right relationship. Now, the disciples at this time, I know we're on this side of the cross, friends, but the disciples at this time knew far less than what you and I know. They're still on this side of the cross, but they're looking forward. And what they're doing, what they're doing is they're praising. They're praising God. But how about us? We know the story just a little bit better that this humble king came to die for us. This humble king who instead of wearing a golden crown wore a crown of thorns, blood dripping down his face for you and for me to go to the cross to forgive our sins, to conquer death. And friends, the agony and the horrific death of the cross is just days away at this point. Yet here we see, here we see these disciples able to praise in triumph. And they don't even know the triumph that's coming. So how much more, how much more can we prepare for Easter? How much more can we see this side of the cross and go through the cross this week? How much more can we praise? Now, these disciples understood far less of what you and I know, that this humble king is actually the son of God who came to give his life so that you and I would have eternal life with God. How much more can we praise God and recount and recount the miraculous things that God has done in the saving work of Jesus at Easter? Yes, but not only Easter, not only this glorious moment of Jesus dying on the cross, going into the tomb and being raised to life again. Not only that amazing and beautiful story, but how about the story of the witness of the church, your story. Friends, what miraculous works can you praise God for 
this Easter. So, as we enter into this Easter season, which I hope we're a little bit encouraged at this point to do, I encourage you to pay attention. Just pay attention to each account, to each account of the Passion Week, each encounter, each moment when this humble king, the very Son of God, humbles himself for you, gives over his kingly rule and rights, gives over his dignity and his comfort, his fame, gives over his very life. Pay attention to the story. And notice how we've, we've really wanted to give you opportunities to enter and engage with that story. We've got our Good Friday service. We've got a, a lament time where we can come and actually be in that tomb, in a sense, with Jesus, lamenting. And those opportunities to come on Easter morning as the sun rises, as Jesus has the new life that is the forever life, that we can celebrate that. And as we come into the Easter service to, to more fully experience and share that with others, pay attention to this story. Why? Because it's your story. This is your story. And so may God lead you into deeper faith and, and right repentance, into substantial praise that recounts his work in your life, that you can praise him for all the amazing and miraculous things that he has done and for the peace that you now can have with God forever. I pray that you're led into deeper confidence, into the very confidence of Jesus, the faithfulness of Jesus that you would be led into deeper faith and that you would be led into deeper understanding to look at these stories and pick out some of those beautiful details. Here's the king coming humbly on a colt. A deeper understanding of who he is and what he's done. And here's how Jesus concludes our passage. You know what? Sometimes we forget to do some of these things. Sometimes we get distracted. It has been a rough season for so many of us. And Jesus reminds us, and he reminds the Pharisees and even the disciples, if they didn't praise, if they, if they, if they didn't get really excited about the joyous thing that, and the triumphant thing that he was doing, do you know what? All of creation would anyways. All of creation would anyways. Even the inanimate rocks would praise. Even the heavens would declare the glory of God in Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. In verse 40, he says this, I tell you, he replied to the Pharisees, if they keep quiet, my church keeps quiet, although they shouldn't, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What an image. Even the stones that God created will cry out in praise. Amen.